This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political podcast. Today's episode is a collaboration with the appropriate podcast of the Collaborative Research Center, Structural Change of Property. Today is June 12, 2023, and my name is Markus Kipp. And I'm Hannah Hilbrand, and this is the second episode of our series entitled The Urban Lives of Property, thinking about appropriation, dispossession, and expropriation in theory and practice. In this series, we are advancing conceptual and theoretical groundwork on the notion of property, how it's shaping everyday urban lives and political discussions about the city. In our last episode, we spoke to Nicholas Blomley, focusing on his conceptualizations of territory and property. Today, our guest is Vera Smirnova, and we will discuss her research on territory and property in Russian history and geography. Vera is a human, political, and urban geographer working at the Department of Geography and Geospatial Sciences and the Department of Political Science at the Kansas State University. Her research explores the relations between land and power and their various manifestations in pre- and post-Soviet Russia. She has recently written a set of important articles on these topics that we will discuss throughout this episode, and you can find the references in the show notes. Hi, Vera. Hi. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we wanted to set off um, with some conceptual clarifications. Can you tell us a bit more about what the specificity is of thinking about property from within Russia or with Russian geopolitical developments in mind? Yeah, it's a good question um, because we usually in a very kind of a familiar to all of us way, we think of property as a some form of a legitimate ownership of a piece of land um, with an attached bundle of rights, with um, secure and defined and delineated boundaries, um, with the legitimacy of the state uh, there as well, because we cannot have property without legitimate state relations uh, too. But this kind of um, familiar, maybe Western-centric, Eurocentric forms of property really cannot account for complex, um, you know, multi-layered um, forms of property coming from post-socialist contexts. And Russia here, of course, would be one such example. There are multiple uh, multitudes of post-socialist cases. So there's really not a single definition for a Russian property model, right? Or for a, a post-socialist pro property model at large, it would differ from um, urban context to rural context, from the periphery of Moscow to the, um, you know, the indigenous lands in the Russian north, for example, to the um, rural former kind of collective um, kolkhoz relations of the collective farms and whatnot. But all these different contexts across Russia and across other post-socialist societies very much um, find this one common ground uh, that this property is not so much, um, despite be being legalized in formal ways, it's incredibly insecure. 
Uh, it draws from legacies of collectivist relations. Uh, it draws from legacies of informal relations and informality at large. Um, it draws from fluid spatiality of the property boundaries, um, constant negotiations between the state, the private and the public. So this kind of fluidity and informality um, is kind of ingrained in post-socialist human land relations. So there were multiple, obviously, scholars that tried to unveil those relations and bring them up for debate at a larger kind of a Eurocentric right stage. And they have done so brilliantly. They dissected the property relations in post-socialism and uh, tried to look into different conceptual models. Um, one of them, probably the most, the most notable one, would be Catherine Verdery, right, talking about the fuzzy property relations and the fuzziness of property in post-socialist states. That's one of the earlier works, probably talking, bringing the post-socialist context out to the world, to political geography at large. So Verdi says that property uh, in post-socialist societies is fuzzy because there is really not a single set of rules that define exclusion or inclusion. There is a lack of clearly defined borders. There is a lack of legitimate owners, despite actually property being legitimized on the paper. And then we have all kinds of other works from critical agrarian scholarship as well. Um, the ideas of quiet sovereignty, talking about rural property relations in rural Russia, in um, rural post-Soviet states too, and talking about the, the value of smallholding agriculture, right? Um, uh, the pre pre presents this space for survival, especially in times of crisis and political instabilities too. That work was done by Natalia Mamonova and others talking about the lack of formal movements, formal organization of food sovereignty, therefore talking about quiet sovereignty. Other ideas such as, for example, dispersed dispossession uh, by Alexander Warbrook talking about the multi-layered slow violence um, that presents, you know, the post-socialist case of, of property relations, this slow, multi-layered um, forms of dispossession that are so different from what we usually perceive as a large-scale, massive land grab, where we know who is grabbing where and what is being enclosed. But here, it's, it's so non-transparent. So it's really, really hard to, to pin down, right, where dispossession takes place and how and why and at what scale. So, so most of those um, scholars, and um, I've worked in particular with some historical examples of property, land enclosure. Most of us um, do try to develop this post-socialist kind of model more generally and really try to contribute to not only different forms of theorizing about property, but also different ways of organizing uh, land ownership and land management too. Good. Well, yeah, maybe we can talk about uh, you, the historical dimension that you unveil uh, in the Russian context around property. So can you tell us more about the processes of propertization of land, that is the making of property in land? in Russia generally, and land privatization specifically. And maybe guide us from 
the relevant uh, historical origins, maybe until today. I love the question on historical origins because, yes, I did spend quite a while, uh, quite a lot of time in the archives, digging all the papers uh, from 1906, the first land enclosure acts in the Russian Empire. But I think, Marcus, what you mentioned here is the kind of separation between uh, property making, right, and privatization. So how we have become um, property owners, right, kind of uh, on the paper and, and in reality. And I think in Russia in particular, that's kind of my, my um, object of an analysis, we can really trace three um, different episodes uh, of the creation of proprietors and the creation of property. The first one, of course, would be the, the 1906 um, kind of Stolypin land reforms initiated by the Prime Minister of the Russian Empire, Pyotr Stolypin, to um, help the peasants exit this notorious commune, the peasant land commune that was just kind of, um, you know, according to the statist interpretations, it was dragging the society behind. The majority of the peasants were cultivating land in so-called communes that would be called Abshina or Mir in Russian. Uh, and um, what Stolypin and his administration tried to do is to, to consolidate their land strips, to consolidate their land plots and to create this new peasant proprietor, right? From peasants to property owners. That was a whole journey that was kind of a short-lived and actually pretty violent uh, in Russia. So here, um, by the end of 1913, those land enclosure acts uh, that Stolypin has initiated completely failed. Uh, only about 10 to 14% of the peasants have actually enclosed their land holdings and actually became uh, the real property owners in the Russian imperial sense, which did not mean they acquired a piece of land. No, they have acquired a paper right, that have um, said that they are indeed property owners, but to allocate that piece of land, to delineate it, to mark it up and to register it would take another years and years of work. And that did not happen. Um, the customary practices of the Russian land commune um, still prevailed. And so we have seen that the reforms uh, stopped very much abruptly after 1911, because Pyotr Stolypin was assassinated by some revolutionaries that were very much against uh, his reforms by trying to turn the Russian peasant into a capitalist proprietor. So after assassination, all the reforms have stopped and very much the peasants have returned back to the communes. But what was interesting, how we could read this episode from the point of view of the British Enclosure Acts of Parliament, right, where the British uh, peasants were turned into capitalist proprietors, which was much longer, kind of a very different story. And reading those two in parallel would help us to understand the difference between creating property owners and actually allocating land to the peasant. I'd like to hear a little more about the commune, the obscena uh, that you mentioned. Um, and this idea of um, a collective ownership of land, how does this relate to the feudal social structures of the time and these practices of serfdom that I associate with uh, Russia of the late 19th century? 
I love this question. Uh, I am a big fan of the Russian land commune. Um, we can just have an entire podcast about it as well. But um, the Russian land commune very much, um, what we know about it today, right, it's just a number of written records that were obviously collected by land surveyors and by different, um, um, uh, you know, by very much officials that would travel into the commune and analyze the commune. The peasants themselves would just sign those papers very much. Sometimes they wouldn't be able to write or to read and whatnot. So you would, in, in the archival documents that I was working with, I would see the survey of the commune and the peasant would just sign the survey, the rest would be collected. So here we already need to question the practices of knowledge production that we, we only acquire so much knowledge from the archive that we can, right? And that obviously can be subjective knowledge. But from what we know, the peasants, um, the peasant land commune has predated serfdom, right? It was in Russia prior to serfdom was established. It's the most ancient form of land tenure based on the, the on the peasant, the so-called peasant law, or what they would call an inseparability of family property. So it was a hereditary commune. The property would be transferred from the parent to the child, to the grandchild and whatnot. Um, the land commune has worked land together collectively with a number of other families. Uh, they would not officially possess, a, have a title to the land, right? That was only with Catherine the Great that the commune became the official kind of a um, user of the land owned by the crown, but prior to Catherine, they just used land that was not very much theirs, but they have perceived it as theirs. And what's interesting about the Russian land commune, what differs it from other forms of collective ownership structures is that it was a hereditary commune and it was a distributional commune. They call it um, repartitional commune as well, because every single year, the commoners went through land redivision practices, they would delineate the land according to some formal, you know, some oral traditions that were practiced in that society at that time, generation after generation. They would use different, um, um, different ways of land distribution based on some normative units that they have established historically that would be demographical units, such as the amount of male power that can can actually cultivate that strip of land they would call it male souls or douchey each peasant would weigh uh, you know would have a number like a, like a value attached to that family dependent on uh, you know how many male peasants you have a certain age uh, so that you can you can actually work the land Sometimes they would be distributed based on the number of eaters or yedaki. That would also be put into calculation. Sometimes the amount of foreheads, right? That's what they, they would call it, the amount of just number of people that would work the land. It's really, really complex. And um, the, only, uh, the only records that we have today from the actual land management practices in the commune are coming from the Russian Geographical Society and the, from the Free Economic Society uh, surveys um, in uh, 1877 and, or 1860s, where the surveyors went to the commune and tried to study and analyze how the commoners live their life. But what we believe uh, that the commune actually was a sovereign entity 
in and of itself, like it had some form of defined territorial boundaries. Uh, if a guest would come to visit the commune, the guest would have to find some commoner that would vouch for the guest, right, to, to let them enter the commune. Uh, the commune had full control over its members, full control over its land. Um, so it was a, a form of a sovereign you know, territorial state kind of in and of itself, uh, even though in reality they did not actually own that land. The land was owned by the, by the crown, by the empire or, or whatnot. So um, there is, yeah, there's just a, a lot reason about it. Um, revolutionaries such as Rosa Luxemburg have talked about the land coming as the um, example of actually just going straight into the highest level of socialist um, organization of life and while negating that step of, you know, first transitioning towards capitalism. No, we can just jump fully into socialism in Russia because the land coming is so powerful. But obviously, we know it did not really happen. In, in the way that they would be talking about. But it has generated a lot of debate uh, across different anarchist circles too. And it's just a fascinating case really to study. And then um, very much, you know, 20 years later, we get land collectivization, which uh, abolishes all forms of privatization, all forms of private ownership, all civil transactions that involved land uh, would be forbidden and land was transferred to uh, the large scale state or collective farms, kolkhozy or subhozy. Um, and of course that was a forced form of collectivization, right? It was not at all um, similar to reviving the old peasant land commune, even though on the paper, it was shown that we are indeed rolling back all the privatization efforts and reviving the land coming, but not in reality. It was a very colonial forced collectivization reform that has led to surveying of the land, um, moving human subjects around, putting them, attaching them to the land, attaching them to collective farms, erasing any kind of forms of local land tenure that would be indigenous, forms of tenure present all across Siberia or the north of Russia um, that would be erasing local peasant forms of land tenure under this one banner of fully collectivized system of land management. And then we fast forward to another 50 to 60 years and we get property coming back, right? With land privatization reforms in 1992, we have this um, tragedy of property unfolding. That's probably the most well-studied episode of prioritization across post-social societies because it, it happened so differently in so many different post-social societies. For example, uh, in Central Eastern Europe, you would see distribution of land based on actual physical land title. But in Russia, we would see distribution of land based on a paper voucher they did not have uh, an actual land plot attached to it. So it was not territorialized in the liberal forms. It did not have, um, it did not imply defined boundaries of property. It did not imply defined location of your land plot. It was just the paper voucher that has tried to really create, um, you know, those, turn those collective farms into joint stock companies and to, to make their 
employees, like the farmers, becoming um, shareholders of those joint stock companies. And then it obviously turned into the massive mess of, of uh, you know, five, seven, ten years of land just sitting fallow and um, farms getting bankrupted uh, um, and leading to the most, um, the most, yeah, um, critical waves of land abandonment in Russia that we are still dealing today and unsure what really to do about that. And obviously contributing to the lack of property culture and um, the inability of us to, to define um, who are the real proprietors, what the real proprietors should do and how to really uh, privatize your piece of land um, in legal sense, how to obtain this, this bundle of rights that it should guarantee in the formal kind of a liberal uh, understanding of property. You started off saying that if there's one thing that defines the multiplicity of ideas about property when one thinks with Russia, or also with different post-socialist context, uh, context, it's that idea of kind of insecurity um, and the fuzziness of the concept itself. And then you talked us through these different episodes um, of propertization and different understandings of properties that inhabited them. So how does this um, history um create these ideas of insecurity in contemporary Russia and how is this insecurity felt or lived in contemporary Russia? Yeah, um, it's it's a very complex question because again, it would be different uh, from urban to rural context, but what really kind of unites those two together is that we can find some contradictory processes taken place in the Russian periphery, in the centers of, of urban centers and whatnot. Well, I mean, very much, yeah, that would be still very nuanced and different, but overall we can talk about, um, on the one hand, um, much land is still unused and depleted. And here we discuss primarily rural, um, you know, agricultural land. So with post-1991 collapse obviously has triggered some of the most devastating and catastrophic waves uh, of land abandonment. So we have seen many farms uh, turned into bankruptcy and um, much of the state land is still currently not delineated, which means half of all the land that the state owns is not, does not have actual defined, de defined boundaries. And half of that of most of the land that the state owns does not have a record right in the Ross in the registry and cadaster uh, chamber. Uh, we don't have the record. Uh, we don't have delineation of the land. We also see that um, the recent um, survey that the account chamber conducted in 2018, they have found that that land is being, being very much used by different agriculture companies, by different uh, firms, but most of the land is leased not following any form of competitive procedures, um, applying some kind of non-transparent um, procedures for determining the rates of that lease. We don't know who, who, who leased the land. We don't know who the renters are. We don't know who the owners are because the majority of state land after 1992 privatization had to be assigned to either a municipal form of ownership or a federal form of ownership but currently we cannot even track it down. Even the state itself uh, is trying so much to 
allocate, uh, delineate that land. But um, just it's a huge mess in terms of doing that because that would be about almost 90% of all agricultural land that is in state ownership currently does not have defined boundaries. Uh, so that is um, a complicated question on the one hand. But on the other hand, we have some very valuable land plots are acquired in, at all costs and all means possible through all kinds of extra legal measures, displacing and evicting the local residents. That is obviously the case for urban Russia, but also for rural Russia too. Uh, for example, recent amendments to the city planning code in 2020 have institutionalized practices of land um, expropriation, not only by the state, but by private companies for uh, housing, for, for construction of new housing, simplifying the procedures for seizing those land plots inside cities. It was very much tied to the most notorious and um, widely discussed program of housing renovation in Moscow that many people probably have heard about. And we have written about this as well, um, how it was um, really much resulted in millions of people being displaced and most of the 1950s and 70s housing stock being demolished. But that uh, amendment to the planning code allowing private corporations to seize the land plots um, for the better of housing development was passed exactly after the 2017 notorious land um, housing uh, renovation program in Moscow. There are another different, uh, different forms of amendments that passed. One was amendment to the civil code. It just passed in December of 2022. Uh, and that says that property owners can be deprived of their ownership rights if they don't use the land plots for intended purposes or they don't take care of their land plots, or if the neighbors are not happy with them. So it again injects another kind of form of conflict, right, in terms of delineation of property boundaries and whatnot, and um, uh, the what is defined as the proper use of the land that is also quite obscure in the amendments. So it, it, it reduces another form of uncertainty. So the fuzziness of property still taking place, right? The land abandonment on the one side and also the extreme kind of extra legal form of land appropriation on the other side. It's taking place in parallel kind of as we speak. So let's take our conversation to onto the territory of uh, territory. Uh, in our last episode, we spoke uh, to Nicholas Blomley about his new book, Territory. And for Blomley, uh, in short, uh, territory is a social relation uh, shaped by and shaping systemic inequalities and power imbalances. And we would like to invite you now to link your ideas of property to conceptions of territory, especially since these are also important and at the forefront of your 2023, this year's article with Oleg Golubchikov. So uh, the question is then, what is the particularity of Russian political, geographical and philosophical intellectual traditions with regard to territory and property? It's such an important question because we need to be drawing more connections between property and territory. 
And Nicholas Blomley is the one that started to draw those connections by bringing the discussion of territory into property. But territory, as we all know of, right, in the kind of a liberal Western sense is enclosed, measured and calculated. And it's, it takes such an important niche in political geography in particular. There has been a whole evolution of studies on territory from territory being as kind of a mere, mere enclosure of a piece of land under the ownership of a group of people that would usually be a state, right? A state, territory, kind of those two things go together. And then there have been different um, developments talking about relational territory, uh, decolonizing territory, looking at bottom-up experiences of territorial practices, talking about territory as a process and not as a mere kind of outcome of spatial relations of power. So all those developments are so well um, articulated in political geography. But property is also a very powerful political technology, right? That also has its own speciality. So the territory of property, like Nicola Bologna says, uh, is also premised on spatial enclosure, right? It, it has defined boundaries uh, to exclude some people and to include others. It also relies on the existence and legitimacy of the state, because that's what territory does too, right? It, it's impossible without the existence of a legitimate state. And property too, property formalization uh, based on there to be a state. There is, there is no state, there is going to be no nobody to formalize and recognize uh, property. Um, and many um, accounts connecting property and territory would draw from the parliamentary enclosure acts uh, in Britain, right? And a uh, similar case can be said about Russia, about the kind of um, Stolypian land reforms of 1906 that brought land enclosure acts uh, for the first time in history to the Russian land. Um, uh, but it didn't obviously work. It completely failed. Uh, peasants have revolted and, and tried to bring back the, the commune uh, because it was so different from uh, the Western sense of collective relations too. But what we can find um, in Russia in particular, uh, that property of territory or territory in general at a larger scale does not uh, rely on firm boundaries. It, it just completely breaks boundaries kind of historically and contemporarily. It completely um, denies sovereignty, right, to different groups of people, be that an individual that used to own a piece of land in the periphery of Moscow, and now that piece of land being appropriated by a large uh, construction company that just needs to build um, houses in the, you know, the current um, housing renovation program, or be that a peasant in the productive uh, Black Earth region in the south of Russia, Russia or Ukraine, where we see massive agri-holding enterprises coming in and taking over land illegally overnight. So the boundaries are broken uh, very much easily. The, the formal owners are not defined on the paper. The state legitimacy is shaky, right? In particular, in the current political economic crisis too. But especially if you discuss the larger scale territory, territory as state sovereignty, there, we also see some contradictions. We see that Russia, very famously so, engages in this contradictory form of narrative, systemically disregarding territorial autonomy of its neighbors, 
right as is um we, we see this the, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We saw this with uh, the war in Georgia. We see this with recognition of other, you know, so-called autonomous national republics that Russia stands behind. We see this in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict too. But at the same time, disregarding territorial autonomy of post-Soviet states also comes in parallel with Russia forcing this kind of Westphalian Western idea of territory onto its own uh, national realm, right? By denying territorial sovereignty of its own uh, nations, different nations that used to be independent states, right? Um, that draw from the old history of, of their own statehood are currently being denied its sovereignty. And not currently, right? This is a kind of an ongoing trend um, starting around in the early 2000s, where we are seeing infringement of on their territorial sovereignty as well. So Rus Dermond, famous political scientist, talked about this as a dual sovereignty, where Russia oscillates between Westphalian principles of territorial sovereignty and post-Soviet model of territorial sovereignty, where you know, all the brotherly nations are kind of together. There is a, no really defined boundaries in between them. Why do we need boundaries if everybody lives happily ever after the Soviet Union has collapsed and whatnot? Putin himself, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, has joked uh, at the presentation of awards um, at the Russian Geographical Society in 2016 that Russian borders do not end anywhere, right? They're, Russia is endless, expansive, space um, geographically grounded right in its geography and its space um, in its kind of a yeah geography of an expansive steppe region so we wrote the paper with Oleg Golubchikov trying to unpack these territorial imaginaries and we try to see how territory is created out of local experiences of indigenous peoples nomadic communities and the peasant communities as well to describe a state, a ter territory of the state as massive, expansive, unlimited, right? So, um, and Russian political geographers indeed, uh, famously so, interpret space of the state as um, infinite and the spatial border bordering of that space is a foreign thing. It's very much borrowed from abroad. It's not the way that Russia Russian society has evolved. So there were various philosophical movements that we have explored, um, Slavophilism, Pochvinichistva, the return to the native soil movement, um, Eurasianism, probably the most um, you know, known to us today because we talk, we talk about it a lot with invasion of Ukraine, but they all build on very different spatial imaginaries. And that would be soil or terrain, or um, landscape or place, everything but territory, right? They, they talk about the multitudes of different spatial expressions of power by the Russian state, and therefore they're using uh, different kind of local indigenous uh, practices to legitimize those forms of expansionism. So we kind of um, look into the convergence of three different ontologies of territory. So first ontology, would be, we call it ontology of commoning that is grounded in the experience of the Russian land commune and how the statist uh, you know, scholars went into the commune. That was a famous thing, going to Narod, into the people, 
analyzing the commune and using those examples, those cases to talk about the expansionist nature of the old Slavic realm where we own and share collectively rights to all Slavic land. The second anthology we describe as anthology of assembling that comes from the ideas of Eurasianists and that is very much grounded in the physical geographic conditions of terrain, talking about terrain and landscape as uh, um, something that the state has sourced its territoriality from and Eurasianists obviously have used ideas of local nomadic communities, this whole cult of nomadism that um, Marlene Larell, a famous scholar of Eurasianism, talks about. They were possessed by the cult of nomadism. They used it to describe the other form of expansionism, not so, so much Slavic and collective, but more of Eurasianist, you know, um, uh, Asian forward-looking form of expansionism. And then we talk about the third anthology, anthology of peopling. That is probably something that we're most familiar with, the anthology of the Soviet state projects of modernization, where we moved people around to enforce boundaries, right? Instead of using border-making practices, we used people to enforce the boundary, to, to, to move people around, to... Um, to, to rechart the kind of uh, imperial expansive state um, in the Soviet modernization practices and whatnot. Um, one thing that is really interesting to note is that those different um, territorial imaginaries are now coming back into the formal Russian foreign policy. And we see this not only with just popular kind of discourse and, and the bringing back those geographical ideas of the, um, you know, the near abroad, the, the third Rome, the notorious Russian world, but we also see it uh, in actual public decision-making as well. For example, the recent, um, the new foreign policy concept that was just signed by Vladimir Putin uh, in the end of March of this year, for the first time since its previous iteration, talks about Russia's special position as this distinctive state civilization and a vast Eurasian and Euro-Asiatic, Euro-Pacific power. And it also talks about bonding of the people of Russia and Eurasia together uh, to constitute this kind of a civilizational unity of the Russian world. So we are seeing those um, geographical imaginaries, not just really being discussed by different scholars, but also being quite powerfully used um, in foreign policy agenda. So I think it's um, pretty important to note as well. Thank you. That is um, really providing a very good first overview into this indeed very fascinating article. And just so people also find it, um, it appeared in the annals and is called More Than State Ontologies of Territory. And from what you just explained, I think the title is also becoming clearer. Um, but before we move more deeply into these ontologies, um, I'd like to talk a bit also about the epistemological project that is related to this. Um, so you also refer to this um, article in the context of the decolonial project to dissenter debates, and in this case, debates about territory. Um, could you spell out a bit more clearly what those colonial relations are, past and present colonial relations? What is at stake there when thinking about Russia? 
I think talking about decolonial scholarship and Russia, those two things just come with such a contradiction because as a massive expansive empire, Russia has, Russian scholars have never really questioned, um, I mean, they questioned its colonial practices, but they haven't really unpacked the decolonial struggles. And that is something that so many of us have trouble with today because um, many nations um, are trying to redefine their statehood and trying to, trying to bring back some form of sovereignty, especially uh, with the, the war in Ukraine and whatnot. Um, but there is just a lack of this decolonial discussion coming from Russia as well, coming from Russian, you know, central, the statist kind of scholarship too. Many historians have argued about different forms of colonization, that would be internal colonization, right, where we look into the Russian peasants as the ones being colonized, but that has also been quite uh, conflicting, right? We cannot equate the experiences of the Russian peasant and the indigenous people of Siberia. That would be a very different form of violence performed against one another, and we cannot collide them together. So Russian scholars have, have obviously had troubles trying to really redefine and talk about decolonization, and many just very much didn't do it. But what's interesting here, and what we talk about in our paper, is that the Russian state itself has successfully utilized a decolonial um, narrative. They essentially mobilized the language of decolonization to talk about uh, different forms of liberation from different kinds of abusive uh, practices. For example, in the early Soviet period, decolonization was discussed by the state as the undoing of the historical wrongdoings of the Russian imperial state, right? Here we're talking about um, Soviet Union portraying itself as a empire of nations or affirmative action empire as two historians, uh, Terry Martin and uh, Francis Hirsch, talked about in their books. Uh, but in reality, those decolonial ideas were very much used to subject other peoples to its kind of own forms of colonization. The concept of Eurasia as well was initially described as this liberatory, um, right, decolonial project that would bring together oppressed nations of Asia and Europe and, and show them, uh, you know, kind of a better post-colonial um, future and whatnot. But in the 90s, Eurasia comes back as a full-scale um, revisionist project of Russian imperialism, right? The, re the restoration of the Russian imperial power and the whole uh, conceptual contribution of neo-Eurasianism with Alexander Dugin being one of one of the main proponents of neo-Eurasianism, just bringing back the hodgepodge of different geopolitical theories to justify kind of um, other oppressive modes of colonization and whatnot. So decolonial narrative has been hijacked by the state, uh, successfully so, right, to, to promote its own form of decolonization. But at the same time, now we are seeing not only kind of the comeback of decolonial um, um, narratives and um, not so much scholarship, but actual activism, ground up activism coming from different national republics in Russia um, that are challenging the recent history. They are challenging Leninist nationality principles. 
that didn't define their nationhood in the right way, even though nationality policy was so crucial for the Soviet state. Stalinist deportations that disrupted you know, their livelihoods, their, their contesting Putin's uh, um, you know, different reforms that led to federal centralization of Russia and denied their formal sovereignty as well. Different nations um, are searching for those lost territorial identities. Sometimes they would be based on different physical geographic attributes, such as the people of the mid-Volga region or the lower Volga region, or the people of the north, or the people of the Baikal region. Some of them are you know, drawing back from territorial, from experiences of their former territorial statehoods. For example, Tatarstan uh, has asserted its independence from Russia in 92, but right, what was denied. Uh, Tuva, uh, Republic of Tiva, formerly uh, a part of China and formerly having its own uh, form of independent statehood, obviously was consumed uh, by Russia and um, other kind of a short-lived uh, states that were there before the Russian annexation. Idel Ural, the multinational state as well, is trying to find its, find its own kind of um, territorial statehood currently. Many of them have joined um, um, this forum of activists and scholars called the Forum of People of Post-Russia. Um, very controversial one, and so many uh, of those ideas were pretty radical, proposing to leave Russia entirely. Obviously, many of those organizations were banned in Russia and um, claimed as um, you know, undesirable organizations and whatnot. Um, so we are seeing some interesting developments there right now. Therefore, it's so important to try to talk about Russia and post-colonization and decolonization. And yet it's such a contested topic um, as well. Could you situate also these processes also in the context of the decolonial debates going on in, elsewhere in the world? So in that article that we were already discussing, you, you write that, uh, quote-unquote, thinking between the posts, meaning the post-colonial and the post-socialist analysis, has, has gained more attention. And could you... Tell us a little bit more. What, how do you see the role or the place of Russia in contemporary decolonial debates? Yeah, I think it's um, important to think between the posts even more than what we are doing now. And we have some notable scholars like Madina Tlastanova that is working with leading post-colonial um, uh, scholars too together to look into draw different connections between post-colonial and post-socialists. Many of us question whether those connections need to be drawn uh, or not. Um, but what's interesting to me, especially bringing discussion back to the idea of territory, we see a very developed uh, project of decolonization when it comes to territory coming from Latin American perspectives. And we see Latin American scholars decolonizing the liberal Western kind of Eurocentric idea of territory by looking into, there have been various various scholarly works talking about territory from Latin American perspective, but mostly looking into territory as the form of, of dwelling 
as the form of uh, shelter, as the form of just really pursuing basic life purposes that um, the liberal idea of that it doesn't talk about at all, right? So I think there is some parallel there with, you know, taking the Russian territorial imaginaries and divorcing them from all the statist interpretation and diving deeper into nomadic uh, territorial uh, interpretations into um, peasant territorial uh, interpretations and unearthing those and comparing them and drawing parallels with post-colonial scholarship, especially coming from Latin America. And that's where I think um, such fruitful kind of space for debate is because there is a lot there. I mean, we can talk about informality. Yes, it's definitely there. We can talk about um, fluidity of borders for sure, right? It's it's there as well. And recent uh, work on India and privatization reforms in India by Thomas Covan, he talks about how this bureaucracy is debated, negotiated every single day as the land surveyors are driving around the land plots and just looking at where the boundaries are and how to draw them and who's right, who's wrong. So this negotiation is taking place in Russia too, not only in the national republics, right, but also in rural Russia as well. This constant like redrawing the boundaries, um, um, preserving some kind of collectivist relations too is one other feature that we can draw from Latin American perspectives, right? For example, Ejido communities in Mexico, famously so, have been analyzed as an antipode to liberal idea of territory where the land is still worked collectively. The same uh, thing in Russia, in rural Russia, Alexander Robrook does good work about talking, um, talking about the collective relations in rural Russia that are not anymore legally binding, right? But they're still there. And some, some, um, some villagers would, for example, privatize land all together, uh, privately, but then they would still work it together, right? Or they would make an informal agreement with somebody in the village, the one person prioritized the land, but the people will work it together, even though there is no actual legal document that binds their agreement. So collectivism, informality, and the fluidity of boundaries, borders of property and territory can be one way to connect post-colonial and post-socialist debates, especially with um, Latin American, uh, very much well-developed uh, scholarship. We are still kind of um, trying to make those connections. Thank you. And one of the things that I've found very interesting is also that other parts of the world, the Anglo-American parts of the world, I mean, I spoke a lot of the time from Germany, also trying to make those connections and learn from these debates to go beyond Eurocentric understandings, even within Europe. Um, so thanks for that. It was also um, very interesting to me. Um, but I'd like now to return back to the ontologies um, of territory that you spell out in your article. And we are particularly interested in the ontology of commoning and also its relation to modern logics of property. Um, one of the things um, that I'm really curious about is how your understanding of commoning relates to or can be positioned within that context of serfdom and feudalism. So there seems to be a contradiction here that I'd like to learn more about. 
Um, and then also what can be learned also from these debates about the obscena, I hope I pronounced that right, um, for debates about commoning in other parts of the world. Yeah, um, I think there is a lot there um, in terms of looking at commoning maybe also kind of beyond obscena too, because... Um, it, it, it might also have negative connotations if you look into land collectivization reforms, right, where commoning was portrayed as um, something similar to Abshina, but in reality, it was a very state kind of appropriated idea where the state was calculating the amount of resources used, the amount of land used, the amount of produce the farms would produce as well. So this ideology, uh, not ideology, but um, the ontology of commoning um, also has a fluid nature. It was indeed used by the state to, to attach people to the land. The same can be said about serfdom, as you mentioned, Hannah, because some scholars, and one of them, of course, Richard Pipes, um, probably the most notorious critic of um, the Russian land commune, Pipes has argued that indeed the peasants were forcefully attached to the land coming by the state so that they would stop fleeing, uh, serve them and fleeing uh, right, um, their obligations. So the commune was kind of engineered to, to attach peasants. It was done not only across Russia, but for example, the Cossack uh, um, um, communities right in the South, uh, Russia and in Ukraine, in Crimea, in Zaporizhia, they would also be attached to the land. Uh, they would also be given some form of, of common property along the boundaries of the Russian Empire to put them kind of, uh, to people the boundary and to, to defend the boundary and whatnot. So there is a contradiction too. It can be really used, uh, and I'm trying to be careful with over-romanticizing the idea of commoning, because indeed throughout the Russian history, the state has successfully so used the idea of commoning to, to, to reinforce its own uh, practices, right, of, of calculation and um, rational distribution of resources and whatnot. Um, the state would also use um, different uh, cases of gulag, uh, settle, um, imprisonment camps, right, under Stalin's regimes would also be described as commoning where the prisoners collectively are uh, cultivating the land and uh, uh, exploiting uh, all those resources in Russia's resource frontiers in Siberia, in the north and whatnot. So yeah, we should be very careful in not falling into the romantic um, kind of definition of commoning. But what we see um, as of um, today uh, in rural settings in particular, that commoning indeed creates such a space for escape like for kind of um, stateless pockets, right? Where um, different forms of collectives, uh, different form, different villages can actually escape um, um, kind of uh, forced uh, forms of privatization that are forced to them by the state. Many of them do not hold the title to the land. For example, in some Russian summer houses, some duchess are just ad hoc constructed and didn't actually possess a title to the land. Uh, many of them encroach on other people's land also illegally. And much of this is a verbal agreement and kind of negotiation on the ground that take place, takes place on the ground too. 
um, and um, so the preservation of collectivism as a means of surviving is survival is really strong, especially if you look into smallholder agriculture and small um, allotment plots scattered all around rural Russia. Um, we will see that they produce the majority of food in very sustainable ways that people still rely on in times of prolonged economic crisis. That could be said, there's some comparison probably with allotment gardens in Berlin, kind of related to your work too, uh, where commoning becomes this kind of tool for um, kind of survival and just basic kind of life purposes as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's important to stay, um, to stay critical still of this idea of commoning too, how it's been used and to pursue different um, ideas. Yes, thank you. Um, however, I would add uh, in, in your article, you also come to talk about the progressive ends of reconceptualizing these ontologies of commoning, assembling, and peopling. And you write, uh, quote, liberating them from statist appropriations, unquote. So maybe you want to unpack this a little bit for us, how these progressive ends are inherent in these notions. Um, is, and, and then I also wonder, I mean, is this idea of uh, sort of redeeming the progressive ends also something that the early communists following the Russian Revolution have already attempted? And what, what do you plan to do new? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, for sure. I mean, many... Uh, uh, Kropotkin and Bakunin, many Russian anarchists have uh, been studying right, the, the peasant society and uh, developing theories of anarchism. We have a really strong um, tradition of critical agrarian studies as well. We have Theodore Shunning, Shunning and um, of course others that are talking about connecting different experiences of peasant struggles. Uh, all across the world, in post-colonial um, and in post-socialist countries as well. So there is such a potential there, I think. And the critical agrarian studies um, have started really strong and talking about the land commune in particular and talking about the state encroachment in the commune. And then of course, extending that to understand struggles in rural Russia, but Often we see that the frames that are used for analyzing that form of agrarian kind of peasant struggle today still draw from um, Western kind of liberal understanding of a land grab, right? A land grab that is something big scale, um, has defined actors, has defined boundaries. Uh, it's usually a spectacular event. It takes place at once, right? We know the land grab has happened right now and the land is being grabbed, it's, it's done, right? The, the owner's hands have changed. But what we see, if you look into uh, those kind of, uh, you know, the farmer, the rural uh, life struggles today, that they are not, that cannot be unpacked um, if you look at them through the lens of a land grab, right? And many, uh, 
critical guardian scholars have argued that, um, that yes, indeed, we have to find different ways of talking about that peasant struggle without falling into just another paper on land grabbing in Russia, because that just kind of shifts the, the conceptual frameworks and doesn't um, and, and distorts the reality, right? There is not a single massive land grab. It's a multi-layered, long-term, slow kind of process that just takes place um, via some extra legal means. People are losing their land. Sometimes they wake up in the morning and the land has been uh, fenced with fences uh, and that would constitute some form of land grab. But we don't know who exactly did this. We don't know how it's been done. Uh, it's been done through some illegal means. And we have seen some outcomes of this, um, uh, for example, with the tractor, the so-called tractor march to Kremlin. There were maybe like 60 to 90 tractors driving from Kuban region in the south of Russia to the Kremlin. And there's just one road that goes to Moscow. They headed to Moscow with the posters and everything uh, telling the current administration that the land has been stolen. And that's kind of a, how those agrarian struggles get into the newspapers, right? By through this uh, anecdotal examples of uh, um, the tractor march. But most often we don't see any, any, any tractor march. Most often we see bankrupted small, whole, small um, farms that have been occupied um, by the massive agroindustrial corporations without any prior notification, without any kind of a formal way of doing it. And um, we should be, yeah, we should be mindful trying to bring back and talking about critical agrarian studies by still developing on our own uh, conceptual frameworks. Maybe this collaboration uh, with different post-colonial um, peasants, farmers struggle examples too, which would probably present uh, a more nuanced framework than looking simply at, um, you know, a land grab uh, kind of a lens or not. And that's where we can build some collaborations with other um, cases of peasant struggle. But indeed, the critical grind studies have famously so used the examples of commoning and the commune to, to draw such collect connections. And that has been fascinating to read. And it's um, um, obviously, most of it is written in Russian too, which is not translated. That's another uh, problem that we have, right? Much scholarship in agrarian studies is not translated into English. It's not published in the leading um, uh, English speaking Anglophone journals. And that's where the lack of translation lies as well. That's where we just cannot directly collaborate with one another because scholarship from Latin America sometimes is also not translated. And it takes a couple of, uh, right, sometimes scholars from the West bringing that back and translating and, and putting it into English and whatnot. And that's probably not the right way of doing things, but we have to find ways to collaborate across national boundaries and across, um, you know, language barriers too. Yes, of course, language is certainly one crucial aspect of the decolonial project and how to actually translate it into practice. Um, but the point that I 
also wanted to pick up um, is this notion of taking things to Moscow, <laughs> um, because we want to speak a bit more about urban questions as well. Um, so reading through your work, um, we were wondering what um, place urbanization dynamics have within these three ontologies. How do urbanization questions change these ontologies or thinking through these ontologies, do they have at all any critical importance in them? Uh, what is the connection between urbanization dynamics and these collectivist autonomies that you're describing for the commune, for example? How can we think them from the city? I think in the, here we would say, well, actually, there's really not much connection. But in the Russian case, there is just a fascinating little bridge between, you know, deep rural Russia and the center of Moscow that we can draw. And that would be, again, this form of common uh, property, collective property. And there is one case um, that is well understudied. There is um, some scholars working on it, uh, Ginola Inizan and Daria Volkova, currently uh, writing about it as well. It's the case of, of the courtyards of the, the most known uh, Soviet era, right, Khrushchevka houses, and not necessarily Khrushchevka houses, but the block, um, multiple story housing in particular. So there we would have um, the courtyards uh, of those houses currently legally, legitimately occupied by the um, owners of the apartments in those houses. So that is an example of those pockets of collective land ownership that we need to really learn more about. Uh, and not only us as scholars, but also people who are the owners of that plot of land as well. Most often they don't even realize that they are collective, that share collective ownership rights to their little courtyard where they have, I don't know, some parking spots and a couple of um, couple of gardens and a couple of, um, you know, small children's playgrounds and whatnot. Uh, most often uh, those uh, people were assigned to, uh, to, to own those collective plots um, initially when the houses were built. And in particular with the um, housing code of Russia, Past in 2005, most of the owners of those housing blocks became collective uh, owners of the land in the courtyards. That means they had to acquire some form of a passport to their land plot, and not many of them did. Not many of them even knew about it. And uh, when they happened to know about it, and they went into the archives and tried to retrieve those passports, Many of them have find out, found out that their land, their borders of the courtyards have changed quite significantly. There were a couple of waves of um, uh, um, re-surveillance of the collective land in Moscow and in, in other cities as well. And that's when um, the authorities have happened to reduce some of the collective land plots and sometimes by 35 or 40%, the land plots were cut. And the landowners themselves did not even know about it because they did not possess the passport uh, that would tell them how much land and where they actually collectively share. So when the people would go back to, to the different uh, cadastral registries and obtain the passports, they would find out that there are some um, 
projects, some future projects on, I don't know, building a small shopping center already approved in the land plots that they actually own collectively. So here, we not only have small pockets of collectivism still there on the paper, right? Well, sometimes people are not aware of it, but they are um, legally there, those small kind of urban commons. Uh, and yet the fuzzy boundaries are still there as well, because we don't really know where the boundaries end, where they start. If we go back to the land code in 2005, we will find out that the boundaries have changed quite significantly. It's extremely challenging to fight against those recent changes, right? Most often you would see that some, uh, co some construction companies are already building something on the land that they collectively own. And so most of them are losing the battle of trying to, to, to you know, roll back those changes and to, to claim them as uh, illegal. So um, that kind of struggle uh, between collective and the private actually taking place in the centers of cities right now. So that's kind of a little bridge that we can draw from the experiences of collective um, land ownership in rural Russia to the struggles in the cities too. Thank you. That's really enlightening as well. So last but certainly not least, um, You've also spoken uh, or you've written in your article from the commune to the borderless world that was published last year um, about the links between your rereading of territorial conceptions to, to today's context, uh, particularly uh, the invasion uh, of Ukraine. So, so could you maybe elaborate uh, this a little bit for us, the, the ongoing influence of these three traditions, these three ontologies in today's Russian society and politics and how that, well, illuminates uh, the current uh, geopolitical strategy of Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, sadly so, but it is in this um, case um, where all those anthologies really come together and shine. And we started writing paper way before the invasion and it happened to be published um, after it has started. So uh, we had to address these questions as, as well with Oleg uh, in the paper, in the annals. But in Ukraine in particular, we see uh, the acquisition of land kind of as a resource, right? Land as property and also land as territory playing in parallel to one another. So we see that taking the land as property, agricultural land kind of as a resource is detrimental to Russia's um, agenda for expanding its agricultural frontiers. Russian administration has claimed famously recently so that they are going to utilize all that unused depleted land to really make Russia the global grain basket, right? And they talked about millions of hectares being utilized now again in the next couple of decades. And of course, the land grab in Ukraine shows that kind of pursuit too. And also the acquisition of land as territory plays a crucial role, especially if you look into popular discourse, right? Of talking about the perception of this porosity of boundaries between Russia and Ukraine. Um, we have seen 
this obscure map being shown on all of the Russian state television showing us that Ukraine does not actually have its own territorial sovereignty, right? It's very much a misleading map. It shows the territory of Ukraine as cut into pieces, which is peace being a gift, gift to Ukraine by Lenin or Khrushchev or who else, or the Russian Tsars, uh, therefore completely denying territorial sovereignty of, of, of a sovereign state, which Ukraine is. So we see those two things come in parallel. At the same time, we also see um, just a massive land grab right across uh, territories that Russia has currently annexed and um, um, that co comprise about 20% of uh, Ukraine's total farmland. That is really substantial because Ukraine's farm industry contributes to about 22% of its GDP as well. So grabbing onto that land really undermines um, their economy long-term. So we see that um, most of the annexed republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, um, uh, have seen different nationalization um, laws implemented where the land was already nationalized by the Russian state to kind of preserve the national property uh, by expropriating that land from its former owners that are Ukrainian citizens. We saw the same happened in 2014, right, in Crimea, where about uh, there were about 15 different uh, resolutions for land nationalization taking place across the Crimean Peninsula, where most of the uh, Ukrainian citizens were not allowed to own the land there anymore. Uh, in particular, there was a decree passed, signed by the President of the Russian Federation, um, that would uh, put the entire territory of Crimea in the list of border areas where foreign citizens are not uh, allowed to own the land at all, right? That would be only Russian citizens that, or people with Russian passport that would be allowed to own that land. So we see about 4,000 land plots all across Crimea have been already uh, appropriated, right? Obviously by different elites and whatnot. And that would be some, uh, some national protection sites and some ancient wineries and whatnot. So we see this kind of an extra legal land grab. But on the other hand, we also see land abandonment right, the same as what we see in Russia in particular, but obviously at much larger and more violent scale, we see that most regions that um, where Russia has retreated from has seen about um, destruction of the farming sector completely. Around Kiev, for example, the Ukrainian government has estimated that about 30% of farm fields around Kiev uh, still have mines scattered along, around them, which obviously means that they're going to stay fallow and not used for years and years to come. Uh, and other farmland uh, that's amongst the most productive agricultural land in Ukraine also has scattered mines and destroyed uh, equipment too, therefore leaving that land fallow for many years to come. So land abandonment and also just extra legal land acquisition kind of go hand in hand here as well. And in particular, I think the three anthologies, right? Anthologies of commoning, assembling, and peopling do help us to understand how this invasion has been um, 
kind of explained to the Russian public, just, you know, juggling different geographical imaginaries and talking about um, the common ship and the brotherhood of the Ukrainian and the Russian people and talking about the porosity of the borders and talking about the massive Eurasianist project too. That was a, a huge kind of contribution to legitimizing the uh, invasion amongst the Russian public, right? We have seen uh, Alexander Dugin um, talking about um, uh, trying to legitimize the full-scale invasion of Ukraine using Eurasianist ideas. Um, so all this kind of comes to life, really, not only in public uh, kind of a popular discourse, but also in formal uh, foreign policy as well, um, and also on the ground as we see some land being nationalized and some land being um, actively just um, intentionally um, left uh, destroyed and unused uh, in the future years to come. So that's kind of a, a sad um, application to those uh, anthologies that we have extracted from the archives you know, of Russian political geography. Yes, sad indeed, but maybe on a more positive note, um, it's also a very positive example, a good example of how conceptual thinking helps us understand contemporary developments better. And I think it's also been a very good example of how widening conceptual thinking geographically to other parts of the world and kind of excavating their different conceptual understandings of property and territory is also so enriching to think these together, not only across the posts, but also different other parts of the world. So thank you so much for that. I've learned an incredibly amount of new worlds. Um, thanks, Vera. Thank you so much for uh, asking such engaging questions. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.